This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that really still likes the postman. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me is Anirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. Good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm exceptionally well, mate. And the good thing is we are coming to people from the past. We actually recorded this podcast last week because I am right now at a Father's Day breakfast with my five-year-old son, and he gets to pull rank on you, unfortunately, on Liam. And, and uh, dear listener, not on you. We are going to give you a podcast. We would never want you to miss out. In fact, we haven't yet missed a week in over 100 podcasts, which I'm pretty impressed with. We've managed to deliver through come hell or high water, like the postman, to, uh, to bring some foolish goodness to the ears and phones of our listeners. Now, Doc, we are going to take a little bit of a break from earnings season today. Um, I'm going to pretend it's because we've got some uh, really important stuff to talk about. In part, that's true. And in part, that's because we're not here for this week's earnings season. Mm-hmm. So we'll come up with any big news next week. But in the meantime, we have got some questions from our listeners. Some that are hanging over. I've been uh, wrapped over the knuckles by one of our listeners who said, dude, I'm still waiting for an answer. And so I had to deliver that because, frankly, I'm scared of him. But also we had a follow-up for another listener. And we are going to take a little bit of a look at the broader market story. Really kind of break the ASX down, build it back together, a bit like the $6 million man, and try and work out exactly what we should think about where to invest and how. Mm-hmm. Are you ready, Doc? Yeah, let's do it. All right. The first one comes from Andrew. And Andrew says, in the last 12 months, I've bought into 15 companies. Now, that's a good start. We mm-hmm. say 15 is about a good start for diversified portfolios. Yep. So that's great. One of which he sold. The company is based in the US and Australia. Doc, you'll be happy with that. That's very good. Are you sure this is Andrew or not you writing this one? Well, it looks like it's Andrew. <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> He's one of the major banking platforms for these trades. I've noticed when selling, the funds are converted back to Australian dollars where you pay another FX spread, which is a technical term meaning basically the bank get their cut, and another when purchasing again. This is ridiculous. I couldn't agree more. My question is, when trading in the US, what is the best platform or option to leave your funds in US dollars? I've been searching different options, even opening a US bank account while using a US broker. I've just recently heard of a trading platform app called Stake. Have you had any experience? So there's heaps and heaps and heaps in that. I'm going to break it down, Doc, and ask you to give me some thoughts on each individual part of it. Yeah. So firstly, 15 companies. Good? Yeah, 15 is a good start. I mean, in our services, we said, you know, if you're building a portfolio, 15 is a good good starting point. Yeah, 12 to 20 kind of, the academics are now saying 20 plus is about the right number for full diversification, but 15 in, in 12 months. Is I have very way more start. than that, but that's You do. Okay, we yeah. will get to that. We yeah. will get to that. Um, and obviously, US and Australia is good. We like geographic diversification. We like industry diversification. So, Andrew, you are absolutely ticking boxes there. Now, here's the question about the Australian dollar, US dollar stuff. So, yeah. we will get to stake in a minute, but let's just talk about currency for a second. Obviously, one of the things that is really, we know this is for fund investors and also for individual investors, one of the great killers of returns are fees and charges, right? Those kind of frictional costs and taxes to some degree, the fictional frictional costs of, of going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. If you pay a couple of percent every time you trade, yep. you're probably going to cut yourself out of, depending on the, the numbers you deliver and, and how frequently you trade, up to 40% of your total lifetime return on some numbers based on differences in fees if, you, if you're paying too much as you Absolutely. go. So we are massive, massive fans fools, of keeping your fees and charges really really, really low. Even in this world of low fees, um, you know, A, don't pay more than you have to. B, don't trade more than you have to. And Andrew is doing that. He's only he's bought 15 and sold one. That's a pretty good ratio for mine. Yep. Doc, tell me about how you go about trading in the US. What, what, do, you, what do you do to, 
to get the best access to the market and minimize your fees and charges. Okay. I'll tell you what I do. And I'll also uh, preface that by saying that, you know, the platforms that I use, and I would say that these are good platforms, then, you know, they're not companies that our company, The Motley Fool, recommends, or, right. you know, we are not, we don't have any financial connections. You get, you get no money from recommending those, I, I get no, I, I, I basically, <laughs> do no, I don't. <laughs> the, the only thing I get is by, you know, basically saying good things about stuff that I like, which basically means other people can do it and they can enjoy the same, uh, uh, same, uh, joy that I do. Mate, so that, and I'll, I'll stop you only for only to say that's an important disclosure, and and I will blow our trumpet as a business and yours as an individual, just for a second. There are very few people in the financial service industry who are giving advice with no kickbacks, no benefits, no no upsides for them individually. Um, we we do that because we think it's the right thing for our listeners and our members. So. Um, it, my general warning is if anyone's giving you advice anywhere in the financial services sector, always ask what's in it for them. Yep. For us, at least in this conversation, nothing in it for us, just our best advice for our listeners. Yeah. Yep. Go for it, Matt. What do you use? So um, I invest a fair bit, uh, actually a lot, in internationally. Uh, mm-hmm. I used to say US, but I've actually broadened that to invest internationally. Right. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know and that. So I, if for, for US investing, I use a platform called uh, Charles Schwab. It okay. used to be called Options Express before, but Options Express was bought out by Charles Schwab. So this, so Charles Schwab is a big um, a broker, a broker uh, mm-hmm. out of the US. Mm-hmm. Um, they they have a local office here uh, mm-hmm. in in Sydney, and um, so you can have you know a local uh, charlesschwab.com.au website, right? And um, you can transfer funds there from your local bank in USD. And, uh, so is it in USD? You mean into USD or actually in US dollars from a No, so, so, so last when I checked, when it, what they want mm-hmm. is you to f- transfer money in USD. So that right. there's a problem there. Right. Because if the moment you ask your local bank, like if I ask Combank to give me USD, they, they, <laughs> they kill me with the transaction <laughs> fees. All about the fees. <laughs> All of the fees. So what I found, I actually found a good way out of that. Mm-hmm. What I do is I use another uh, service, an Australian company called Oz4X. Okay. And I use that to convert money uh, when I'm transferring mm-hmm. uh, from uh, my local Australian dollars to USD and it gets sent essentially from here to Charles Schwab in New York okay. and, and the, you know money gets you know and it arrives in a day or two so you in, basically in transfer money from your bank account to an options express noted account giving them instructions to forward it to somebody else yeah and they handle the forex exchange for you yeah so basically i use oz forex okay. right and I, I mean charles schwab had told me that they're going to have a way to do the conversion at their end okay uh but you know i've found oz forex works very well for me mm-hmm. when i you know um and and so whenever i transfer i've used them right uh that's one option and okay. it works very well um charles schwab though is only allows you to invest in or is a platform that allows you to invest in the u.s right. you can do international investing but i believe only for mutual funds okay if that's of interest to you and and to get that you have to you know fill in extra forms so i don't i don't have that um there is another platform that i use which is called uh saxo capital markets mm-hmm. um and um they allow you to actually choose your base currency so you can choose whether you want to keep your base currency as Australian dollars or British pound or whatever you want. Right. And whenever you make the transaction, they take a very small fee, essentially on the spot rate. Okay. Right. Which which I find very attractive. So I have an account there which actually sits in uh, where the base currency is set as Australian dollars. And I, I use that to essentially access about 30 or 40 different markets. Okay. Um, and they they have a you know they can take they take a bank transfer from your local Australian account to another local Australian account that they own, and and you can trade. Their platform is not the easiest one to use, but right. you can use it. Right, sounding pretty complex thus far. So you've kind of got to transfer money. You either get your bank to transfer Australian dollars, or you've got to use a, a forex broker like Oz Forex. Yeah, 
with Saxo, do you deposit in Australian dollars, or you still have to use Forex to deposit? No, no, here? no. So with Saxo, it's it's relatively straightforward. You okay. you you transfer from your Australian account to another Australian account. Okay. With, they have a reference number for you. It's like basically doing a BPay. It's actually okay. like a BPay. Right, right. You BPay into their account. It's with Saxo is pretty straightforward. Okay. It's a little bit more convoluted with uh, with Charles Schwab, um, but I do love the Charles Schwab uh, interface. It's much cleaner, easy to use. They have a lot of research that you can get, and the trades are cheap. Right. Okay. <laughs> So that's a pretty good combination of ideas. If uh, I, I will say for what it's worth, my view is for most people, unless you're super engaged in investing internationally, you probably don't need an international account, right? Like you, you can most most large companies, in fact, almost all large international companies will have an ability to buy or sell them on the U.S. exchanges. So you yep. can you can buy what they call American depository receipts or ADRs that's for most cool. European and Asian companies of any significant size on the U.S. market directly using using a single broker. So. I would say for what it's worth, my view is you don't necessarily need to go to a fully international broker. Yeah. But I and for what it's worth, man, I also use Charles Schwab having been an options express customer as well. I was transferred across to them. I haven't made any any deposits recently. I didn't realize you couldn't you used to be able to deposit Australian dollars in an Australian yep. bank account back in the day. Yeah. Um so so that's that's worth talking about. So that's good advice. Now let me go to the question about stake. What do you know about stake? So stake is interesting, right? So it's basically zero fees. Tr- uh, buying and selling. Hang on, what's the catch? <laughs> so no one's a- giving me anything for free. <laughs> no, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So they're making money off the um, the forex. So isn't that kind of the same thing? It's kind of the same thing. So I mean, I, okay. So I'm not sure whether it would scare to you when you when you're buying. Mm-hmm. There's this transaction. So when you you're, you're funding, I believe in USD. Correct. So when you put your money in, then it becomes US dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, and they make their cut on the way through. On the way through. So when you you made the transaction, and then I guess when you're taking money out, they'll make the transaction. Right. And I guess they also probably you know maybe draw some interest on the money that sits there. Uh, so that maybe is the other way they make money. Um, I haven't used it. I know that um, uh, our colleague Bruce Jackson has tried it out, and mm-hmm. he actually thought it was good. Okay, um, so I don't. I haven't used it. Um, look, I mean, it might work for people, mm. and and you know, and and if you're transferring, I, I believe if you're transferring larger amounts of money, then the cut is you know would look insignificant mm. compared mm. to if you're doing smaller amounts of money. So maybe you have to do a bulk transfer, right? And and you know, so you can't do it monthly. Maybe do it like every six months or something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good option, I think, um, as well. Um, and their interface looks super cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, I haven't used it either. Bruce, as you say, has used it. One of our one of our fellow fools. Um, he quite likes the setup. It's super easy to get started, which is kind of nice for people who are listening yeah. to us. Um, I think you're right. We only you only you only basically pay the brokerage if you're putting money in or taking money out. Yeah. Now each individual transaction or transfer has that that commission, so you're paying something. Nothing's for free. It's a pretty low cost way to do it. Uh, I've met the guy from Stake. Actually, he's a nice guy, and we kind of like the the people involved, but have no kind of formal view on the on the app or the business itself. Um, I think I would I would probably be inclined to say what I normally say about most brokerage accounts, which is that. I would simply. I don't look. I think. I think Andrew's right. Paying every time you settle a trade is crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. So, Andrew, you're right to complain about that. Find yourself a broker that allows you to keep the money in US dollars if you're going to keep your funds in US dollars. Yep. If you're that being said, for all of these things, if you're not going to trade that often, just be careful that you don't end up putting the cup for the horse. So, you know, I, I I trade in the US maybe once a year if I'm lucky. So for me, whether I paid five dollars, ten dollars, or fifteen dollars for brokerage, it's just immaterial, right? Relative to the amount of money I've got in, in the in the, um, in the the market, just because it just doesn't matter enough. So for me, I would go with a, cust- a service that I liked, an interface that I was happy with, customer service that I thought was good. Um, it's just not about that. And frankly, my own my other concern, I will say, Doc, and I'll, I'll say this many times in different contexts, 
You know what I, I fear most about low brokerage? Is it encourages people to overtrade? Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, back in the day when you had to pay 150 bucks brokerage to someone. Yes, the broker was getting rich, and that was crappy for everybody. But it kind of meant you couldn't, and you didn't want to trade that frequently because if you're going to, a, you're putting larger amounts per trade, and then you came, well, hang on, if I buy something, sell something, and buy something else, that's 300 bucks round trip, mm. right? Just to to sell one and buy another. It made you think twice about what you were doing and kind of yeah. put a handbrake on that overactivity. So I would say for most people. By all means, keep your costs low. We just talked about that. And if you trade too frequently or and or pay too much tax, it will cost you a fortune. But that's it's the frequently bit for mine rather than the actual cost per transaction that's far, far more important. And again, that temperament of just being really careful not to overtrade just because it feels like it's free to do so, that's kind of a one-way ticket to the poorhouse. We know that even index fund investors end up losing to the market somehow. Well, the answer is because they trade too frequently. They try and buy at the right time, sell at the right times, rather than just hang on and enjoying the ride. Um, you think index fund investors are supposed to get the average index return, and they should, but we just can't help ourselves. Those buy and sell buttons are just too big and shiny and kind of – we all want to think we're smarter than we are and we can somehow tell what's going on in the market. So, yep, keep your fees low, find the best interface, but just don't trade too much. I agree. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mates, I'm going to go to the next question. We had a question a couple of weeks ago from a from a, a correspondent who asked to remain anonymous, which we will respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and he asked about Bill Shorten's franking credit proposal. And I, I went a bit of a bit of a rant on that one. And then he said, "Well, thanks for your part answer on Bill Shorten franking credit's proposal." I took that as a bad sign. <laughs> he said, "I'm still wondering how to prepare for this change." So I kind of addressed the "What do I think about it?" without saying "What should you do." Mm. And I, I have to say, I didn't answer that, um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it, and then I'll ask for your thoughts, Doc, on, mm-hmm. on, the, on the, the results. So for those who weren't listening a couple of weeks ago or who forgot, or frankly, because we've had 84 prime ministers in the meantime, aren't really sure what's going on with the, with the current policy. The current Labor policy, and we'll get back to that specific word in a second, is that franking credits won't be allowed to be refunded more, more than the amount of tax you're actually paying as an individual. So right now, you can actually get money back from the ATO every year, and pay literally no income tax. So you can pay GST and other things, but on a pure income tax basis alone, you can actually go through a year and get a, get a bonus check at the end of a year from the ATO and say, hey, you paid no tax, but here's some money for you. Now, I'm on record of saying that's exactly as it should be because you are the company is a, effectively a, a fiction, a legal fiction, created as a pass-through mechanism for tax. And so if the government says that my tax rate should be zero, then I should pay no income tax on my earnings at all, whether they are company profits or income or wages or car sales commissions for whatever it is. Um, that should be the reality. Now, we've gone through that, and I've been through it in a lot of detail, uh, but how to prepare for the change is an interesting question. So I'll say a couple of things. Firstly, this is just a policy, and you mentioned last week, Doc, the fact that policies are policies, and it's a long way between something that someone thinks about today. A, Labor has to win the election. B, they have to take that policy to the election. C, they have to hold it after the election. And then D, they have to put it into practice as legislation. That's a reasonably long part. Now, I've got to say my general reading is it's probably more likely than not that each of the things will happen. But if you add the probabilities together, I wouldn't be rushing out to assume that it's necessarily going to be the case. That being said, uh, so that, that's my first. My first thing is I wouldn't do anything about it at all right now. I don't, I don't think we have enough certainty to change a, a company-specific or investing strategy based on what may happen legislatively. That being said, the question of what will happen, I could absolutely imagine a scenario where companies that pay fully frank dividends that are owned by this group of people who are largely self-funded retirees who are getting those refunds, they simply may be under less demand at some future point than they are now for exactly that reason. 
that those people who've said, well, I'll favour those companies, I'll pay up for those companies because of the tax benefits I get, it's simply on a net basis, the old, you know, the old politician's favourite line of downward pressure on interest rates. To my mind, there is some downward pressure on share prices of the likes of the banks and Telstra and some of the big dividend payers if we end up in that scenario, because simply the amount of demand currently is whatever it is, X, X less than less X less some percentage is going to be the, the, the case in future if simply the tax benefit doesn't accrue to those companies. So yes, I would expect there'll be less demand than there is currently for those company shares. That being said, I don't know how many other better ideas and opportunities there are for those investors. Because you're still getting the, the tax, the franken credit benefit to zero tax. So it's still effectively tax-free. You just don't get an actual refund. And there's not many other investment opportunities that are equally tax-free in the same way. Yes, you could go and buy property. Yes, you could buy other shares. But for those people who are kind of keen to buy bank shares because they pay high, fully frank dividends, you're losing the refund. But they still, to my mind, end up being the best place for those people who... Oh, sorry, I'll say again. I think those people will see them still as the best place to invest. So if I was a betting man, I wouldn't do anything at all about the policy, A, because it may not come into fruition, and B, even if it does, I can't see the investor class of people who own these shares currently abandoning them anytime soon. That's my thought. What do you reckon, Doc? I actually agree with that. <laughs> Don't do anything until the you know the law is enacted. That 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 is hard because I mean, <laughs> you know, it has to go to the House, the Senate, <laughs> people have to agree. Uh, before that, there might be some consultation <laughs> with the public. So it's it's a long drawn process. I wouldn't do anything about it right now. And and as you said, I mean, you know, if your if your whole goal is to is to get franking credits and you want to offset that against your mm. gains, so, I mean, mm. where do you go? I mean, you know, you you I guess what you you try to do there is maybe make sure that you know you're using up your cre- credits and they you know balance out to zero or something like that. Right, right. Instead of trying to you know get the get a check back, which you wouldn't get now. So right, right. Yeah. So in the short term, I think the right answer is to not do anything. In, in in most cases in the market, not doing anything is actually the right thing to do. <laughs> let me let me challenge it just one time, just to kind of make sure I represent our listeners' uh, question back to you a little bit. What about someone who says to you, "That's all very fine for you guys, but I'm there's, there's a very real possibility I'll lose money here. Why would I take the do nothing solution and somehow feel like I'm not really in control of my finances? Why not actively take action? Why not why not be in control, be be at the forefront? Why not kind of get out there and and try and beat this deal to the punch? What why not? actively do it why not you know people don't like feeling like things are done to them we all like to feel like we're active and in control of our destinies for those who are saying well i don't really love the idea of sitting around what would you say well as i as i as i said right now i think in the market not doing anything most of most often is the, you know not trading not doing anything not taking an action is the best action you can do right. you can take is to basically sit on your bum if i may say so mm-hmm. um, um but okay so here's how i look at it if you have a better alternative right to what your current strategy is by all means do it right if, if you know you know if you have a better uh dividend franking um you know uh, mm-hmm. strategy mm-hmm. why not enact it now but if you don't have anything better mm. What do you do? I mean, you know, if you you know, the share market is still going to give you better returns than many other things. Right. So then, what would you do? You 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 wouldn't sell out if if you're that class of investor who is invested in the you know high dividend paying franking mm-hmm. stocks. Mm-hmm. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to uh, you you can't go and buy uh, the tech stocks, right? right <laughs> because right. they're not going to pay you the dividends. Right. Right. So if that's not the investor you are, and that's not what your strategy is, there's mm-hmm. not, you know, there's not much of a choice here. Um, so I don't know. Maybe you can invest in uh, if if you're just interested in dividends. Maybe invest in non-dividend, non-franking credit, <laughs> um, uh, dividend-paying companies. Maybe right, that's right. that's the solution. But yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I I think not doing anything 
is is would be my bet. Yeah, I think that's really true, mate. There's there's a there's that old cliche, don't just stand there, do something. And and that's the human that's the very base human desire and need. We we deeply, deeply, deeply dislike as as humans sitting there and letting things happen around us. Yeah. The need to come somehow feel like we're in control is just overwhelming. There are so we could do we could do months of podcasts on psychological biases, but that's one of the more dangerous ones. I just finished talking about not trading too frequently. You mentioned that as well, talking about the fact that well something might happen, and so I should have to do something to to, to somehow fix that. Um, I, I will I will compare it to the likes of everyone you've ever read for the last so January twenty sixteen, we saw in the in the AFR RBS saying sell everything, calamity's coming. Last year, at the end of last year, there was people saying the market was going to fall 80% this year. Um, there is no shortage of people who are predicting doom and gloom and stuff that might happen. If you try to respond and react to all of those things, A, they probably won't happen. And B, if they did, even if the, the factors they believe will come to pass came to pass, the net result doesn't necessarily mean what they think it will mean. So you know, if Labor is elected, then maybe there'll be a policy. If there is a policy, maybe it hurts share prices. Yep. Or maybe it doesn't. And you can't respond to every individual piece of potential legislation, potential risks, potential actions. Otherwise, I could I could sit here, you and I could spend hours running through the top 15 risks for every company in the ASX. Mm. And the only way to respond to all of those would be to say, don't invest in any of them, which would be patently crazy because some of them will do really well. The existence of risk doesn't invalidate your investment strategy. It just informs that strategy. So I completely agree with you, mate. I think doing nothing is exactly the right solution. It, it, Frankly, I will say for those listeners who are heavily into the banks and Telstra and others, high dividend paying stocks, if that's your portfolio, I would say diversify anyway, regardless of the strategy that Shorten's going to implement. And if it does save you from some downside, then great. But frankly, if you've got an overabundance of banks, overabundance of slow growing, high dividend paying stocks, there's every probability that you're taking on more risk than you imagine uh, because you simply don't want to have that much of your portfolio allocated to those companies. That's right. I think that's true. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Man, I'm going to move on. I got a question from Tim. Mm-hmm. Now, Tim said I wasn't allowed to say how much he's enjoyed the podcast, but he said it with a smile. So I'm going to read out his first line, which is, hi, Scott, I'm enjoying the podcast and your recommendations on Share Advisor. Tim, thank you very much. I'm only including your question because it said nice things. So thank you. That's a, that's a good way to get your question read out on this podcast. We are nothing if not sycophantic. And so we will absolutely, and narcissistic. So there's a couple of things we are. Uh, that'll, that'll I'm help. going to add my thanks to Tim. <laughs> to, no, uh, Tim, that was great. And we appreciate it. To send more love across <laughs> to us. <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> Indeed. More importantly, he says, I took note of something you said in the last, well, a couple of weeks ago, in a recent mailbag podcast regarding LICs or listed investment companies. Mm-hmm. You said you and your colleagues generally for ETFs or exchange-traded funds over LICs. Yet on your published holdings on fool.com.au, you list Sol Pattinson and Berkshire Hathaway. Am I missing something here? Are they not listed investment companies or are they something slightly different? I expect to see more of your recommendations in your holdings, money where your mouth is. I also checked out Anirban's holdings and understood none of it. <laughs> so, again, a, a lovely multi-part question from Tim and we'll, we'll address them all individually. So, LICs, once upon a time, were the only way you could get broad market exposure in a single investment. So back in the day, before you could buy index funds, before you could buy an exchange-traded fund, which is effectively some manager's combination of a whole lot of stocks on a theme or an index or an issue, you kind of, if you wanted to have bits of everything, you, you either had to buy them yourself or you go to a listed investment company. Some of the oldest ones are the AFIC, the Australian Foundation Investment Company, or Argo Investments. These guys are decades and decades and decades old. They basically try and put together a portfolio, a really wide, diversified portfolio of Australian stocks, 
And you could buy shares in those investment companies and get the markets, not the markets return because they never offered exactly that, but some version of, of, a, of a market return plus or minus a bit. One, perfect diversification in one stock. What we used to call in the good old days widows and orphans stock. So if you had to say, well, here's a diversified group of everything, jump in these, invest in these, put them in the bottom drawer, you'll be right. And I said a couple of weeks ago, that I, I just don't get why people do that anymore. ETFs are lower cost. You get exactly the index return. It makes zero sense to me to invest in an LIC. So that was, the, that was what Tim heard, and I still stand by that. But he's saying, hang on, isn't Arsenal Pats and Berkshire just LICs in a different form? And I'm going to kind of, I'm going to cop to a yes on that one, but also a no. And let me explain. Sol Pattinson, Washington H. Sol Pattinson and Company, the full name of the business, was a pharmacy chain way back in the day. And they kind of, they kind of, you know, evolved to say, well, we're making all this money. What do we do with it? And rather than pay it as dividends or, or buy, buy other businesses, other, other pharmacy chains, they invested it in a, in a, a series of, in, of listed investments and then unlisted investments to the point where they now own stock, uh, stakes in a couple of large businesses, Brickworks, API, TPG. Um, they own a property portfolio. They do own a small portfolio of listed companies as well, so BHP and banks and other things. Um, and they do a whole lot of – they've got an uh, investment bank. They've got a whole lot of stuff in their portfolios. Berkshire Hathaway, as people will know, is run by Warren Buffett. He owns very large stakes also in publicly listed companies, including your favorite, Apple Doc. Um, but it's Coke his largest and, holding. Coke and Amex and it was IBM for a while. And he also owns a very, very large number of wholly owned businesses. So mm. businesses that Berkshire owns outright, including real estate agents and car dealerships and parts makers and all sorts of wild and wonderful things, um, bookstores, uh, candy companies, the whole, the whole box and dice. I think where I would here's what I would here's how I draw the line between the two: a broad LIC that's basically only doing an index uh, index fund type operation like Argo or Afic are pretty much just doing that. And so, if you want very, very, very broad diversification, you want to buy the market. You might as well buy an ETF. You get the market return. You pay as low fees as, as the companies can possibly manage. Vanguard in particular, and you can go on your merry way. Also, the bid ask spreads are lower. Right. The difference with Berkshire and Sol Pats, though, is these guys are active investors, really not trying to do anything of the sort. There is zero correlation between Sol Pats and the market or Berkshire and the market in the way they are constructed. Now, Berkshire's getting to a size where it almost is a proxy for the US economy in some way. So it kind of is almost a, over time, it's becoming more and more a proxy for the US market. But these, these are run by investors who are trying to find the best possible ideas they can and building a company that is kind of, is it listed? Yes. Is it an investment company? Well, yes. So maybe it's an LIC by definition, if nothing else, um, but it's nowhere near the same as those other businesses. And so from that perspective, you know, an LIC is yeah, isn't always an LIC. If you're an active investment company, an active business looking to find the best investments you can, uh, like Solpats do, like Berkshire does, very, very, very different. You're effectively backing the, the management of those businesses and the businesses they own to give you good results rather than just saying, I'll take a broad approach to the overall market. What say you, mate? Am I right or wrong? I think you're right. I, I, I'm, I have answer. a different take on what Berkshire is. Berkshire okay. is... Um, Careful. Uh, um, I'm going to say good things here. Okay. It's an insurance company. Right, that's the other thing. <laughs> it's basically an insurance company that is um, uh, an active invest in the market. Mm -hmm. And it's basically an insurance company plus a conglomerate, right? Because it, it owns many, many other businesses. that Some of them used to be actually listed in the market and they just bought it and made them private, right? right, so, right, right. so it's a conglomerate which has many different arms plus it's got a you know insurance business plus it's got uh, an active investment portfolio so it's it's not like an LIC in that sense right i mean it's not right, right. 
um, you you usually wouldn't get that exposure. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, vinyl, yeah. I see. And 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 Solpat uh, is very similar in that sense, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't have an insurance business, but right, right. except so they don't have the float that comes with the insurance business. But otherwise, it's very similar in that. In 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 it's similar in that mini Berkshire for you know. Uh, listeners yeah nice. so hopefully hopefully that makes sense tim good question the next part of your question though you you give me a bit of a hard time so i expect to see more of your recommendations in your holdings uh i will i will <laughs> cop to unfortunately the motley fool not giving me anywhere near as much money as i think i deserve uh but that aside i will say that every single one of my companies is either a current or former recommendation of one of my services so in that sense i am absolutely straight putting my money where my mouth is um a couple of holdings i have are no longer recommendations of those services but i hold them because i've already always held them uh, I own no companies, to my knowledge, that, not, that aren't recommendations of one of our services. So I might own as many of the recommendations as you'd like, Tim. On the flip side, every single company I own is either a current or former recommendation. I think I can be any more money where my mouth is than that. I'm completely, my entire portfolio is lined up completely with it, the investments that we have recommended to our members in the past. He also, though, says, Doc, I checked out Doc's holdings or any of holdings and I understood none of it. Mm. So I'm going to ask you in a couple of minutes just mm. to give me a quick rundown of why doesn't he understand any of your portfolio and just how do you invest? Okay. So part of the reason might be that a lot of the so on the on our portfolio listings, we have ticker codes basically that describe the company. Many of those tickers are actually to international companies. So I have a large okay. allocation to international companies, most mostly US. Um, I imagine Apple's high among that. Uh, Apple, Apple is high among that. So AAPL, uh, if you're looking uh, at Doc's profile. Yeah, so AAPL, for example, it's probably the second largest holding we have, or <laughs> maybe the largest actually across the two portfolios that, yep. I, that I run. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so I, I mean, uh, I've always in, invested internationally a lot, um, you know, and that's my way of getting diversification. So mm-hmm. so part of the reason is that you'd also see um, uh, I'm, I use derivatives, which you don't like at all. Um, oh, and uh, so I use uh, what what's known as uh, options, and um, I use options. The options are not the major core of my portfolio, but I use essentially um, I sell puts, right. which are way, which is basically a way to buy a company at a lower price. Mm-hmm. And when you sign that contract, you get paid for it. So it's, it's you know I like I like the transaction. I act as the insurance agent. I say okay, I'm happy to buy this company, mm-hmm. Apple at. So he, you know, uh, Tim might have seen that I have an Apple put that I wrote for $115. Apple is today at 220 or something. Okay. Um, I wrote that long time back. I usually write long term puts. So hang on, if you got, if you let, let's let's try and make options interesting on off an okay. audio format. I, I will do my level best. <laughs> okay. And we'll, we'll make it. it quick. So an Apple $115 put. What does that do? Okay. I'll backtrack. Okay. So when Apple was, let's say, at $130, yes. maybe a couple of, you know, maybe a year and a half back or mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. Uh, and when Warren Buffett was buying, yes. uh, you know, and I said, well, you know, Apple looks undervalued, looks a great business, I love this business. At 130 bucks, it seemed cheap, okay. Yeah. What I said is that, okay, I'm happy to buy yeah. two years from now, yes. or from that time, yes. for $115. So if the price was lower Two years later, yeah. you buy the shares at one hundred and fifteen. I would. I, I'm locked in to buy at one hundred and fifteen. Okay, you have to buy. Or you're 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 happy to buy. Well, I'm locked in the moment I've signed that contract. Okay, or basically made. So that you're contract. agreeing to buy it for one hundred fifteen bucks 15. in two years. Yeah. Okay. Right, and each contract is basically for hundred shares. So if you've yep. sold one contract, it's basically one hundred and fifteen times hundred is your huh. liability. Right. So you're gonna pay eleven and a half grand in two years later for the shares. Yeah. If right. the shares are below one hundred and fifteen. Only if they're below 115. Only if they're below 115. Okay. If the shares continue rising above 150 or stay above 115, yep. you don't have to buy. Okay. But what's in it for you? For making that promise to mm-hmm. buy it in two years' time for uh, at 115, mm-hmm. I got paid some money. 
Right. Okay. So you're effectively someone saying, if the shares are below that, I might want to sell them to you. Exactly. I can lock in my minimum price of $115. So I protect my downside. Yep. And you're saying you'll take the other side, which is, hey, if they're below that, I'll happily buy them in exactly. two years' time. And you give me money now, which is free money for me. I just have to make sure I've got some cash left in my account in a couple of years if I have to execute the trade. Exactly. So that's that's it. Right. It's just basically like being an insurance. You know, you're on one side of the insurance trade. Right. And, you know, the way you look at it, if I got $15 for each share at that point, then mm-hmm. I looked at, oh, it's 115 minus 15. I'm actually not buying at 115. My effective buy price is 115 minus 15. Right. Because the premium you've received, yeah. you're effectively, you're banking that cash or you can use some of that cash to buy the shares when it comes out. Exactly. Which means you don't have to buy 100 bucks. Yeah, exactly. Which, 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 would look, which looked to me like a great price. And and so yeah, so on companies that I own, mm-hmm. and I'm confident about, or I like what they're doing, mm-hmm. I would sometimes sell puts. Right, um, and it's free money either way, right? You either get to buy the shares at a cheap price, exactly, or you get to keep the money or both. Yeah, I mean, it's not both. free money in the sense that you know you need to have the cash at that point to right, buy right, it, right? right. So you, one needs to be very careful about the fact that you know you, it's very easy to leverage up. Mm-hmm. And what what if you do? What happens is that if the market goes up, you don't buy anything, and the leverage works in your favor. So you know your returns look higher than they would be right. otherwise. Right, right. However, if the market goes down, so you know, because I use leverage, you know, if the market goes up one percent, my account might go up actually two percent. But if yeah, the market right. goes down one percent, my account goes down two percent. Right. And in a worst case scenario, let's say the market crashed the day before you had to buy the shares. Yeah. Uh, Apple's now selling for seventy bucks. Yeah. The rest of your portfolio has fallen by three quarters. You got yeah. the money in your account. Yeah. You're forced to sell undervalued shares to pay over the odds to buy Apple. So yeah. you kind of can lose out a couple of different exactly. ways if things yeah. go badly. Yeah, if you don't have cash to buy it at that point right. or you don't have access to a cheap margin account or whatever it is, again, I do not advocate Correct. using margin. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you are in any chance forced to buy right. in a bad time in a market crash, this is not for you. Be but very, very yeah, afraid. B, you should be very careful. Uh, but it's it's a strategy that I find useful in terms of um, y- you know working. It's it's another strategy that a lot of people don't use, and yep. I find and it's an interesting strategy, and I like it. I am going to leave you to that, Doc. I'm happy just to make money the old-fashioned way, slowly and carefully, and at a, at a very decent compound rate. But if you have to, if you have to play those games, I will. I will let you play. We might at some point go dig a little bit deeper into options, not as a full podcast. Are you sh- I, you're showing your age, John. Oh, by, by come not, on. But not, Be by nice. not, by not picking up on these, you know, new and exciting things. I'm happy to stay with Warren Buffett. Thank you. Do. You can you can play your games. I'm gonna just I'm gonna do it the old fashioned way. <laughs> All right. Okay. We, we will actually talk options at a later date. Uh, I think it's an interesting topic, and and as much as I look, I'm, it's not for me. Um, and I do think people can use it really badly and cost themselves some a fortune, as you've alluded to. But I understand they can be useful in some in some ways. And we will come back and talk more about it because it's an interesting topic, and I think a lot of our listeners will value your insights and input. So I will swallow my dislike, and I will ask you more about it. Well, I'll just add one thing. At some point, Warren Buffett also used it. So, and let's leave it at that. That's he's, exciting. Thankfully, he's uh, he's smart enough now. There we go. Liam has saved us from the options discussion and invited me to saddle up on the high horse. Listen, I'm not sure whether that's a good thing. or I'm not sure it's an improvement or, an, or, a, or a, uh, a worsening of situations, but you're going to have to hear my high horse anyway as we finish off this podcast. I am going to rant loudly and long. Doc has got a surprised look on his face like I don't normally rant, rant which is yeah. unusual, yeah, about the fact that the short term is killing the long term. We found out last week, in fact, we don't know yet because we recorded this last week before the decision, we now have a new prime minister, unless by some magic Malcolm Turnbull is still in the chair. I think it's very long odds. But (coughs) assuming he's not, we have another prime minister, the fifth in five years. By now, we might even have a general election on the cards for all I know. 
Short-termism is absolutely destroying the value of the long-term perspective. We all know, imagine the Snowy Hydro scheme. You reckon that would have been built if we had five prime ministers in five years? I guarantee you it wouldn't. Think about the roads, the shipping ports. Think about the decisions that have been made with years and decades in mind. How many politicians do you know today that are making those decisions? The answer is almost none because the electoral cycle is short. Politicians are craven and are self-interested. Yes, that's almost all of them. And that's costing our economy, our country, our people a whole lot. And the same applies in investing. We see so much in company reports about the short term, this this three months, this six months, this next year, companies managing expectations, trying to maximize profits today for their bonuses, for their jobs, for their reputations at the expense of the long term. We've seen that so many companies that have come asunder because businesses have made too many risks, try to do too much to get the short term results and bugger the long term. We're even seeing it in the corporate tax debate. Thank God, and this is a slightly political view, but only on a policy basis, not a party political view. Thank God the Senate voted down the company tax cuts. People who believe that companies will suddenly pay people more money and invest in more jobs just because they're paying less tax are completely mad, ideologically driven, completely mad. You want to make sure the economy is flowing. If the economy flows, it means more people spending more money on more things, which creates more jobs. You don't do it the other way around. You certainly don't do it by cutting taxes. When businesses have already made their profits and made their things, it comes down to how much activity there is in the economy. That is the job of governments. That is the job of people who want to see the economy grow. That is what they all should be doing, and not enough of them are, Doc. And it is driving me mad. When it comes to elections, when it comes to company management, when it comes to your decisions in life, look for the long term. There is so much more money to be made, so much more benefit to be created by focusing on the five and ten-year view rather than obsessing over the next three or six months. Yes, Canberra, I am looking at you. Yes, corporate CEOs, I am talking to you too. And there ends my very, very satisfying rant. Those are long rant. There we go. <laughs> I even got, I even got the, uh, the Winnie. That's, that's pretty impressive. That was a, oh, I feel so much better. I feel so much better. That's, that's, that's such a long rant. I mean, that's very unusual. And in one breath. Did you I like know, that? I, I love I it. I was pretty worked up, I've got to say. I'm, I'm yes. I, it's, it's, it's that sort of time. Oh, I've had enough. I've had enough. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Fools, we love hearing from you. Please send us your comments, feedback, questions, or ideas. You can email us at info at fool.com.au. You can hit us up on Twitter at themotleyfoolau. You can hit me up personally at tmfscottp. Or Doc at at Anirban underscore? No. Nope. Anirban Mahanti. At Anirban Mahanti. A-N-I-R-B-A-N-M-A-H-A-N-T-I. Anirban Mahanti. Or TMF Scott P. Hit us up. We love hearing from you. We love answering your questions. And frankly, this podcast, believe it or not, despite my self-indulgent rants, uh, is all about you. We want to know what you want us to talk about, what you want to hear about, the questions you want answered. Let us know because we can then deliver a podcast that works exactly for you. And of course, as always, if you've got something nice to say, let us know. If you haven't, please keep it to yourself. And that does wrap us up. But before we go, please don't forget you can and should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, throw us some stars. A nice five-star rating is always kind and appreciated. It lets other people see the podcast and know that it's worth subscribing to too, if only so you can share your dislike of my high horse rants. Share it with your friends. Share it with your friends. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. decent. Yeah. It's the least you could do, really. It's the least you can do. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another f- dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. 
The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.